Hi, welcome to the On Becoming Educated podcast, where I, Paul Vu, will share my experience as a first-generation PhD student. So I was supposed to release this episode last week, but I couldn't get it out in time because I was so emotionally overwhelmed by everything that was going on. I'm talking about the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, and especially hate crimes against Asian American elders that have left one man dead, another slashed across the face, and a grandmother robbed and assaulted. A grandmother. I mean, if that doesn't make you angry, I don't know what is, or what will. And there was so much more than those examples that I gave that I won't mention in detail here. These crimes have been so heavy on my mind that I actually woke up screaming from a dream last night. I feel real fear for my community, for my loved ones, and for myself. As you know, I've been learning a lot about white supremacy, power, and structural racism. And as a scholar, I try to be as informed as possible so that when I say things, They come from a place of truth and deep reflection as well as education. But last week, I struggled a lot with using my education and all the things I've learned so far in my PhD program to make sense of the emotions I felt. I struggled to make space for logic and emotion. And I couldn't put what I was going through into words until I came across an article by Michelle Kim, author and CEO and co-founder of Awaken, an inclusive leadership development company in Oakland. I am exhausted, she writes. I am exhausted by the continued violence against my people and especially our elders. I am exhausted by the continued silence and delayed motions from the mainstream media outlets committed to upholding white supremacy through erasing our struggles while magnifying the myth of the model minority that puts a target on our backs. I am exhausted trying to hold both the trauma and pain of my community and steering us all away from the trap of anti-blackness as the weapon of choice to fight our oppression. That's what she wrote. And I think that's what it was last week for me. I was exhausted. I was exhausted trying to reconcile my emotions with my education, knowing full well those two things may never reconcile. Knowing full well the power of white supremacy. Knowing full well I couldn't give in to white supremacy, not even a little not even while I was exhausted and scared. I had to stand against anti-Asian racism and all racism, all the time. But I can allow myself to feel frustration and exhaustion and anger and everything else that comes with this kind of work. I have to allow myself to feel all these things. Or I cannot 
move forward with this kind of work. You can read the rest of Michelle Kim's article, which includes some important historical events that help contextualize the fight against white supremacy by going to my website and looking at the show notes for this episode. Wherever you are and whatever stage of activism you're at, I hope that you keep at it and give yourself space to feel whatever you need to feel. I think no matter how many books I read, how many theories I've learned to explain society and the horrible things that are happening in society, I have to remember that at the end of the day, I'm still a person. I'm still a person and I still have emotional responses to what I see in the world. And I can't just be a scholar with no feelings. And I'm not saying scholars don't have feelings, but I can't just rely on theory and turn away from my emotions and my feelings to all of these things that are happening around me. I have to be able to use these theories to explain the world, but to be also be able to look at the world and the things that are going on and to use these things to explain theory. So these two things go hand in hand and I realize that I need to make space for both of them. So I don't know if that made any sense, <laughs> but I hope that part of it or some of it resonated with you. I know I spent a lot of time thinking about this last week. So if you were also thinking about this stuff, um, I just want to let you know that you're not alone. You're not alone. And now here is today's show. Lately, I have been thinking about something that also seems to be appearing in my life over and over again. In my conversations, in the books I read, in the events that are happening around me. I wonder sometimes if I'm just noticing this thing more and more because I'm thinking about it more or if I'm actually attracting this thing to me because of the energy that I'm sending out into the universe. Or maybe, just maybe, this is just one step in the long journey of being in a PhD program and of becoming educated. Whatever the reason for its appearance, I wanted to talk about this thing on the podcast today, and this thing is the act of unlearning. To truly learn something, we have to unlearn what we thought we knew about it. A few weeks ago, I finished the book Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. Many parts of the book struck a chord with me, but I think what really slapped me in the face was the straight-to-the-point way of her saying, the most damaging legacy of the West, and this is West with a capital W, has been its power to decide who our enemies are, turning us not only against our own people, like North and South Korea, but turning me against myself. That last part turning me against myself. 
Ugh, it just went straight to my heart, twisting painfully into the muscles there. As an Asian American, I know exactly what she's talking about. And for a long time, I didn't know how to put into words the anguish I felt at being turned against myself. But now I think I'm starting to figure it out. Early in 2017, I started a blog whose original name I won't be revealing because I'm kind of a little embarrassed by it. The blog was a mix of a lifestyle blog and a personal analysis blog. I wrote about how to save money at the grocery store and interracial relationships. I wrote about grad school and failure and building confidence. I blogged for about two years before life caught up with me and I decided it wasn't what I wanted to do with my free time anymore. I took that blog down, but I still have the written material. And I want to share an excerpt from one of the blog posts I wrote in January 2008. The girl in the red coat went to the store and bought some apples with $5. As the words left my mouth, the need to roll my eyes was so fierce, I swear my body shook with it. The woman on the other side of the table didn't even bother to look up as she wrote my words down on a piece of paper. A tape recorder rolled on and on and on next to her elbow. The story didn't end there. I'm pretty sure the girl in the red coat did something with those apples, but I can't remember. I do, however, remember the anguish I felt at being the only student called out of class to be tested in the English language. I was a junior in high school and hadn't been in an English development class since elementary school. This felt like someone decided to wage war on my identity, and it wasn't the first time. It's been a long time since I called myself an ESL student. I never pretend that I was born speaking English, but I also never let the fact that English is my second language be the core of my identity. And I think that's why I felt such anguish when I was identified as an ESL student long after my last ESL class. Being an ESL student was a season of my life that helped shape me as an individual, but it didn't define me. My story isn't just an ESL story. It's that and more. It's a story of growth and creativity and quiet rebellion. And I will not go gentle into that good night. So yeah, that was my blog post. And yes, I quoted Dylan Thomas. I think I had just seen the movie Interstellar, in which Michael Caine quoted these lines like a million times. And so I think I had them in my head when I was writing this blog post. Rereading this blog post um, made me realize how even as I thought I was writing for myself, I wasn't. Even as I thought I understood myself, I didn't. I wrote to please white people, and I didn't understand myself at all. Although I was sharing my lived story of being othered and expressing my anguish at being so obviously told I didn't belong, my choice of words and the tone of my writing couldn't hide the fact that I desired so much to belong. 
to not be an other. I desired so much to be white. I realize now that maybe I wouldn't have been so offended if I hadn't wanted so much to belong. All my life, I had been taught that ESL was bad. If you're not familiar with it, ESL stands for English as a Second Language. In the U.S., and some may even argue in the world, English is very much the valued language, the language of education and money and culture. So having English as my second language was bad, which is strange given that multilingualism is and should be considered a benefit. But even the skill is racialized. An immigrant kid being multilingual, being bilingual, is seen as a negative thing compared to a white middle-class kid being bilingual. Anyway, that's a whole nother episode. But for me, being an ESL student meant that I wasn't born into a valued group in society. It also meant I wasn't completely developed yet because in order to be completely developed and shall I say completely normal and completely human, I had to be able to speak English as a first language. So, at a young age, I was being trained to see my first language as something that was preventing me from reaching normality, from reaching success, from reaching value. This training continued through school and through TV and other forms of media. I was continuously taught to look at myself through the lens of the ruling class and race and to hate what I saw, to hate myself. This was reinforced over and over again so that I often felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I often felt too aware. And I felt most aware in rooms where I was the only Asian person sometimes the only person of color. But that's not even the strangest part of it all. Stranger things happened when there was another Asian person in the room. And maybe I was overthinking things. Maybe it was the result of racial trauma or oppression. Maybe it was just my introvertedness. (laughs) But I often felt like in these spaces. Myself and the other Asian person would try our very best to avoid each other. (laughs) As if through that, we could avoid being noticed as Asians and therefore as not normal, as other. If we just tried really hard not to get close to one another (laughs) and drawing attention to ourselves if we just tried really hard to pretend like we weren't the only two Asians in the room, like as if there weren't two huge blinding lights shining down on us with blinking neon signs that might as well say, not one of us, not one of us. Honestly, I just didn't know how to interact with that other Asian person. And sometimes they didn't know or didn't try to approach me as if we have this weird pre-agreed upon understanding that we weren't going to interact with each other. In my high school U.S. history class, there was one other Asian student in the class. 
a Hmong student whose family I knew through the marriage of a cousin. And we barely spoke. When the class got to the Vietnam War, my teacher, Mrs. K, brought in a Hmong speaker to tell us about how the Hmong were involved in the war and how that involvement led us to currently live in the U.S. I remember feeling like a teacher had finally seen me sitting in this ocean of white students <laughs> because I went to a predominantly middle-class school with white students. <laughs> so I finally felt like my people's history mattered, even if only for this very short section on the Vietnam War. I felt proud for a second. Then the speaker began to play a qing, a pipe instrument which is used in funerals and important rituals. While he played, the other Hmong student, who barely uttered more than a few words to me in all the time we were in class together, leaned over to me and said in a low voice, This is so embarrassing. I remember thinking, I wonder why he's embarrassed. And I remember thinking, am I embarrassed? Should I be embarrassed? In this instance, I don't think I was, but as I consider my classmate today, I wonder if I knew then what Kathy Park Hong concluded, that the West had taught my classmate to hate himself. I wonder if I knew that then, and I just didn't have the words for it. The next time I learned about my own people was in college. Not in a classroom, but in the shadows of the library as I ran my hands along the old tomes, reading titles that talked about history and war and tragedy. Flipping through the crispy pages, catching a few paragraphs here and there as the book's woody, musty scents gather in a not-unwelcomed cloud around me. Picking up Bamboo Among the Oaks, the first Hmong literary anthology ever, it left such a lasting impression that I even talked about it in my master's thesis years later. Or maybe I talked about it because by 2010, when I was writing my thesis, it was still the only Hmong literary anthology out there. How Do I Begin, a Hmong American Literary Anthology, wasn't published until August 2011, five months after I defended my thesis. And even then, even then, even living this lack of information about my own people, I didn't mention the lack in my thesis. And my thesis was about Hmong students' identity and language maintenance. I either didn't have the words, the foresight, or the courage. It was probably all those things and more. It was probably the training that I had gone through. The training that I had spent 21 and a half years going through. A training in which I saw how invisible I was how invisible my people were, but I saw nothing wrong with it. And even in the moments, and there were moments, 
just like that moment in high school when I was tested in English, where I saw wrongness, where I saw oppression. I didn't have the tools to mount a full resistance. A couple of weeks ago, I read Paulo Freire for the first time. Freire is a Brazilian educator and philosopher whose foundational work in critical pedagogy has been highly influential in several disciplines, including education, sociology, anthropology, and cultural studies, just to name a few. While reading chapters from his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I realized that I have been asleep, submerged in a pool of cold, dark water. I had been numbed by this training that I had gone through all my life, this conditioning that told me I was not normal, that my language was not normal, that my black hair and my not white skin and my flat nose were not normal. I needed to wake up from this. And not only did I need to wake up, but I needed to wake up and do some spring cleaning. This was a moment of realization And actually a moment of recognition. I saw myself the way my oppressors saw me. And I needed to throw all those images out. Only then would I have the clarity and the room to learn anew. Now, Freddy says the quest for freedom is the quest for consciousness. And for full humanization. And this starts with seeing yourself as a subject instead of an object. I had always thought of myself as someone who paved their own way in life. Who made options out of nothing. Who opened doors where there were none. And who hacked her way from nothing to something. That's how I always thought of myself as. But I realized that in many parts of my life, I had been seeing myself as an object for a long time. An object of immigration, an object of poverty, of the US school system. And an object has things done to it. It is shaped by the forces around it but it doesn't have the power or the agency to do very much. So to turn this around, to turn myself into a subject, I needed to decentralize whiteness and English and the American story that I had been fed. I needed to remove the image of myself as other and as forever foreigner that I have been fed. I needed to look at my lived experiences in the world through my own eyes and see them as valuable and normal and central to me. I can't stuff more things in trying to make room when there is no room, like a closet that is filled with things that you have acquired over years and years. I can't stuff new things in hoping they will make sense if the old stuff is there. Taking space, waiting to mess with the new things, 
I have to make more room. I have to do some spring cleaning. I have to unlearn first if I wish to learn. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast listening platform of your choice to be notified when new episodes are up. If you would like to support this podcast, a rating and review would go a long way. Podcasts with ratings and reviews are more likely to be found by listeners. So I would very much appreciate it if you can take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast. If you would like to make a donation to help me run this podcast, you can do so at ko-fi.com slash onbecomingeducated. That's ko-fi.com slash onbecomingeducated. Every dollar helps. Follow me on Instagram at bypavu and the podcast at onbecomingeducated. Lastly, to access transcripts and submit listener questions, go to www.onbecomingeducated.com.